Most of you know I spent about 30 years in the Army, most of it in the reserves. My dad was in the Army. Most of you have heard some stories from my growing up years, moving around the world with him. My point is, I have a military background, and my boss knew it. My supervisor knew it. He had told me to do something. He had told all of us in our organization to do something, and I took exception to it. I disagreed with it. And he looked at me and he said, Spivey, and you know, that's what they call people, they call you by your last name. You know, this wasn't in the military. He said, Spivey, you're in the military. You ought to know how to take orders. Well, if you know me, that, that kind of uh, got my dander up just a little bit. And, um, you know, if you stop and think about it, one of the great things about the American Army is, yes, we discipline our soldiers and all of our forces, all of our armed forces, to take orders as immediately as possible because in, in wartime and on the battlefield, there is no time to ask questions. It's a life or death matter. At the same time, we also train them to think. We train them to think through the courses of actions that follow commands and what the consequences might be. Not every order is a lawful order, number one. Not every lawful order that is given is necessarily prudent and wise. And even if an order is lawful, <clears throat> it may not be safe. So if you stop and think about that in the background of what we're talking about today in the commands of Christ, what's the application? Well, it was the 2nd of September, 1960. <clears throat> we were at the height of the Cold War. Even though the Berlin Wall had not been built yet, the Iron Curtain had dropped between Poland on one side and West Germany on the other, East Germany, Romania, Hungary. We were at the height of the Cold War. It was a September day in Grafenbeer Training Center which was not very far, is not very far from the Czechoslovakian border. It was nine o'clock in the morning. It was a gray, cold, rainy day. It was just after payday. The third armored division was preparing for its semi-annual training exercise. An A battery, third <clears throat> battalion, 18th field artillery, fifth corps, was doing a live fire exercise. The call for fire from the Ford observer was accurate. The fire direction center had precisely calculated the firing data and the commands to the howitzers on the gun line, the eight inch gun line, were precise and they were clear. The commands were good. They were wise, they were prudent, they were safe. Meanwhile, downrange in Tent City, that is Graf's Camp Kesserine, 600 tents, advanced parties from the 3rd Armored Division were then beginning to occupy and prepare for the training exercise, and it was just after roll call that morning. And Colin Powell was there. Colin Powell was with the 48th Infantry, uh, Infantry Regiment. He was not a four-star general in 1960. He was a first lieutenant. And he heard a whistling sound, and he turned and instantly saw as it impacted on the top of one of the tents an eight-inch round that had come into their bivouac area. It was an air burst. 
It hit the 3rd Squadron, 12th Air Cav, and destroyed three tents. Sixteen instantly were killed. Twenty-seven were injured. It's the worst ground training accident during the 45 years of Cold War engagement on the NATO side. What was the cause? The wrong powder charge. The command had come down to the guns properly, but it probably had not been distributed accurately, or it had been misunderstood, or somebody just made a mistake in following a lawful, safe, and right order. I don't know what the charge was. You know, the length of the, the round going down range is determined by the size of the charge. Maybe instead of a charge six, it may have been a charge seven. And it, round, it landed a, a mile beyond the impact area. Human error, human error in listening to commands. Not all orders are lawful. Not all lawful orders are wise and right. And even if they are, they're not all safe. But we're here to understand today that all of God's commands are. Through Jesus Christ, when we hear him speaking over the next few months, the commands that he gives us, and we're looking at the imperatives of Jesus, we know that all of those commands are lawful. They fit within God's law and purpose. We know that they are all right, wise, prudent, and true. And we know that they're safe. We know that they're safe in as much as they're life-giving, but I'm here to warn us today that though they may be, see, may be safe, sometimes they require great risk on our parts. You know, it's imperative that we then do what? When he gives us commands from his gospel, that we trust him completely, that we listen to him carefully, and that we obey him exactly. About this series of sermons upon which we have embarked last week. The purpose of the series is to listen to the commands of Jesus to us today. Last week, we gave several reasons why we would want to do that. His words speak the real truth. They are right. They're prudent. His words bring joy if we obey them. His words cancel out all that white noise that we talked about last week and speaks truth in the midst of dissonance and confusion. And his words bring eternal life. But today what I want us to focus on from the Gospel of John in the 14th chapter in Jesus' imperatives, the first one that we deal with, is the most important reason that we listen to God's words. The, most, the very most important reason is because when we listen to Jesus, we hear the very words of God himself. Jesus' words, his imperatives, are what God himself commands us to do. Jesus' commands are what God considers most important. They're important things. Jesus' words, and you know if you stop and think about it, we take it for granted. But Jesus' words are not only God's words, like they came to Isaiah and he was inspired by the Holy Spirit and infallibly wrote what God told him to write. These are the words that are not only authored by God, but they're spoken by God. He spoke on the mount to people, and as they listened, they were listening to God speak his own very words. We know these are God's very words because Jesus told his disciples that this was so. 
Uh, this occurred immediately after the Lord's Supper, the incident that we're talking about today in John, the 14th chapter. And the background is this, in John 13 and 14, the disciples were told by Jesus that they could not go where he was going. Jesus explained, I am going to be glorified, and in so doing, I am gl going to glorify the Father. Now, what did he mean by that? We know now, they didn't then, that he was saying, I'm going to do what? I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be crucified, dead, and buried, and I'm going to be raised again, and it doesn't end there. I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to go home. I'm going to be with the Father. They didn't understand this at that point, and Peter asked where Jesus was going or why they couldn't go and where he was going. And Jesus said, you can't follow me now. You can't go with me. There's going to come a time when you can go with me, but you cannot go with me now. And Peter said, why can't we go? Lord, I am willing. And he knew that there was something because Jesus had already told them that he was going to suffer and die. He knew there was something sinister behind this glorification thing. And he looked at Jesus and he said, why can't I go with you? I am prepared to lay down my life for you. And Jesus, knowing what was going to happen, looked at him and said, Peter, you're not going to lay down your life for me. Before the rooster crows, after the rooster, before he crows three times, what's going to happen? Before he crows, you're, you're going to do what? You're going to deny me three times. So there's some confusion about what Jesus is saying. Jesus then clarified what was going on. The beginning of John 14, you know the well-known passage. Jesus explained that he was going to go to prepare a place for them in the Father's house. And what did Thomas ask? He said, how do we know when you, where you're going? What is this about the Father's house? We don't know the way. And then we have one of the greatest sayings by Jesus. What did he say? I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And he went on to say that nobody comes to the Father except through me. And then he added, you see, if you had known me, if you'd really known me, you would have known the Father also. You would have known what I was talking about going to the Father's house. And so it brings us to our passage, our focal passage today in the 14th chapter, beginning in verse number 8. We're going to look at four verses, 8 through 11. Then Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me, here's the command, believe me, the first command that we're dealing with, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, otherwise believe because of the works themselves. What's important about this passage, the highlights of this passage, I think, are this. When we listen to Jesus over the next few months, he speaks God's words. Look at verse number 10. Do, not believe that I, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. I think a second point is that we, we believe they are God's words. We know they're God's words because Jesus is one with the Father. 
That's the point of this passage. You see, in verse number seven, it's the verse that I left out between the introduction and the, and the beginning of the reading. Verse seven is pivotal. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and you have seen him. Another reason it's important in this passage is because Jesus gives two reasons to believe this fact. What's the fact? That he and the Father are one. The first is that he commands us. He simply commands us. I'm making an assertion, believe me. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. But then he knows that some of them will not believe his assertion. And he said, if you don't believe me, then do what? Look at my works. They give evidence. Look at my works, and then you will know that the Father and I are one. Today, what we're doing is we're going to deal with that first command, and that is, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We focus on Jesus and the Father being one. After Easter, in a few weeks, we're going to pick up the other theme, and that is, he tells us to believe because we see his works, and they give evidence. You know, all this began with Jesus' declaration of his divinity. That began back in chapter 10 of John's gospel. There were a couple of incidents that we need to understand for background. He declared his divinity in chapter 10, beginning first after the healing of the man that was blind from birth. And in the presence of the Pharisees and the Jews, Jesus declared two things very clearly, that he was the son of man. And that's another way of saying that he is the Messiah. And he also said right after that, that great I am passage about the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And he began to allude once again to his suffering. He said that the good shepherd does what for his sheep? Lays down his life for the sheep. And then he not only lays it down, but because the father's given him permission to do so, he also takes it up again. So death, burial, resurrection then. And he was doing all of this, he told the Pharisees and the Jews, in obedience to a commandment, to an order that was given to him by his father. The strong implication in this is he's not only the son of man, the Messiah, he is the son of God because he speaks about his father's command to save his sheep. This confused the Jews that were listening and they were divided. Some say, this guy is nuts. He's insane. He must be possessed by a devil. And others said what? No, 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 no. Look at his works. Look at his works. Is it possible for a demon to heal? Is it possible for a demon to raise the dead? So you see there's confusion after this incident. There was a second incident. And this is where he then finally brings it to the conclusive statement of his deity. It's after the Feast of Dedication. It's what we know as Hanukkah today. It was about three to four months, probably, before his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We, we think that it's that feast of dedication in the winter before the coming Easter, what we call Easter. He was on Solomon's porch in the temple. And these confused Jews that don't understand what he's been saying then say, said, once and for all, tell us, are you the Christ? And Jesus chastised them for their unbelief. And then he said this very clearly in John 10, 30, you can highlight it in your scripture. I and the Father are one. Enraged, the Jews, and understanding the implication of that, accused him of blasphemy and they tried to stone him. And at the end of that passage, as he was slipping away, he, he made it even clearer. He said, you don't believe when I tell you that I'm the son of God. 
So he's declared it. He is not only the son of, the man, son of man who is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, he is the son of God himself. The conclusion and the implication of this this morning is Jesus is both the Messiah, the son of man, and the son of God. And the son and the father are one as he has declared. Jesus is one with the father. The son was one with the father in eternity. And when he was born incarnate, he remained to be one with the father. And Jesus' words that we hear over the next few months come straight from God the Father to us. There are a couple of explanatory notes I think we should cover this morning. The first of those is very clearly, the Father and the Son are one. And then secondly, when we listen to Jesus, we listen to the Father. First of all, God's Word declares that the Father and the Son are one. That's how we know. His Word tells us. Now, when we say that, we don't mean that they're one in identity. We don't mean that the Father and the Son have exactly the same identity, the same personality, the same personhood. That's a heresy from the early church known as monarchianism. And you have one of two choices if you make that statement. You're either going to say that Jesus, the Son of God, is not divine. He was simply a man that God adopted to do his mission, a Messiah. That's called dynamic monarchianism. Or you b- believe in modalistic monarchianism. That is that the father himself became the son. And I remember Bill Estep making that very clear when we covered the heresies in the early church. He said, Jesus, yes, is, is God. He's, he's God in this sense. He, he and the father have the same divinity. But we must not make the mistake of saying they're the same person. God the Father did not become God the Son and suffer and die on the cross. Two separate persons. No, God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he has one Godness. And we understand that as the Trinity. God is one substantially, eternally, and relationally. The Bible tells us this. The Father and the Son are one in this respect, in substance, in essence. Hebrews 1 begins this way. They have the same godness, if you will. And he, that is God's son, the author of Hebrews tells us in verse 2, the very second verse, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by his word. So they're of the same substance. They're of the same eternal coexistence. The father and the son have always existed. There never was, even before the beginning of time, a point at which the Son did not exist. Colossians tells us very clearly, not only is the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, all things were created through Him. He is before all things and in all things, and all things hold together in Him. Also, they're one relationally in terms of love and honor and respect and trust for each other. They abide in and with each other. They're united in that respect. And we read that in verse number 11. Look at what what it says in verse 11. they, they, They abide with each other. Evidence of this abiding relationship, Jesus gives a little bit later in chapter 15. If if you want to know whether or not we are one in this kind of relational, abiding relationship, John 15 tells us very clearly. I have, and the evidence of that is this, I have kept my father's commandments. 
I have kept the orders that he has given me, and therefore I abide in his love. The conclusion of, of this first point of the Father and the Son being one is this. If we see Jesus, and if we know Jesus, we see the Father and we know the Father. Joe Bean's sister passed away a little more than a week ago, and they had the funeral on Friday. And at the graveside, they opened the casket because they had not had a service earlier, and the folks filed by the casket, and they, they looked at his sister, Martha Weber, for one last time before they closed the casket and lowered it into the ground. And Joe turned to me, and he said, you know, I never realized just how much Martha looked like her mother. Family resemblance. You see Martha, you see Joe's mother. But more than that, the chaplain then that gave the eulogy at the graveside said something just as important. She spoke about the resemblance of family character. She said, you know, she ministered to me as much as I ministered to her because the chaplain later confided to some of us that she was struggling with cancer. That is the chaplain. And Martha had encouraged her with her kindness. What that says is there's not only an outward resemblance, but there's a family characteristic. There's a family resemblance. That's the way it is between the father and the son. Personal example, when I was at Fort Sill, we came back from Turkey in 1974, and a friend of my dad, a fellow by the name of Daryl Cagle, was stationed there, and he'd known him in Vietnam. And he knew about me, but he'd never met me. And I went to visit him, and I was walking across the parking lot, went upstairs, went to his office, and he looked at me and said, you're Jim Spivey's son. I recognized you coming across the parking lot. I go, why? He said, you walk just like your dad. Family resemblance. But that's not the end of the story. I was an artilleryman. You know, he became the range safety officer. And about three years later, I was the OIC, the officer in charge of a shootout there. And all of a sudden, everything was shut down. A time round had gone off over the observation point. Didn't injure anybody, but it was out of safety. Does this sound familiar, folks? Who's on the hook? Who was the officer in charge? I was. We went through all of the calculations. They had been accurate. All of the commands to the gun had been accurate. They had all been safe. They had been fired properly as far as we knew. And I gave testimony to that. I said, everything squares. Well, now usually at that point, because the round landed out of safety, what the range safety officer does is said, I don't care. Something went wrong and who's responsible? You are, you're, you're responsible. But Daryl knew my dad. And Daryl knew his character. And he said, I tell you what, I believe you. I believe you. So he went the extra step that they usually do not take. And they took the howitzer back to the hard stand and they checked it out. And they found out that in fact, when it had been serviced at the depot maintenance, hundreds of miles away, that they had not calibrated the trunnions and the mounts to the weapon and it was off. It was the weapon that belonged to the unit. It was not our responsibility. I was off the hook. But my point is this, folks. You see, he went the extra step because of why. Not so much because of me, but he knew my dad. And he said, if you're Jim Spivey's son, I trust you. You see, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about not just family resemblance. We're talking about character. We're talking about the Son of God reflects the very character of the Father. 
And we can trust Him if we trust the Father. When you see the Son, you see the Father. When you know the Son, you know the Father. There's a second point. When we listen to Jesus, we listen to the Father because He relies on the Father. When we listen to Jesus, we listen to the Father because He imitates the Father. When we listen to Jesus, we listen to the Father because He speaks with the Father's authority and He obeys the Father's commands. When we listen to Jesus, we listen to the Father because He executes properly the Father's will. When we listen to Jesus, we listen to the Father because He relies totally on the Father and His teachings. In John 14, He just said this. That he acts and he speaks not on his own initiative, but the Father's initiative. And he admits openly in John, the fifth chapter, when he's talking to the Pharisees and the Jews, I cannot do anything on my own. And later when he is talking in John, the eighth chapter, he says that he does and he speaks only those things that he sees the Father doing, what he has heard from the Father and that he speaks those things in the world, and he speaks the things that the Father has taught him. Wow. You know, in Jewish tradition, they were told to teach their children the Word of God. And most children obeyed their parents. Not all of them did. But you could tell the character of the child based on the teaching of the parents that was given to them through the Word of God. You know, you look at Aaron's kids, his children, for example, There were a couple that did not obey. They received the word of God and they were disobedient. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to God and they were struck dead. But you look, on the other hand, at Eleazar, the third son, and he was obedient. He listened to the teachings of his father Aaron and he obeyed and ministered for 20 years and helped Joshua apportion the, the, uh, the land in Canaan. You look at Phinehas, Eleazar's son. This is the third high priest. And he was obedient to the word of God because he listened to the words of his father, Eleazar. And when idolatry and sexual immorality crept in from the Moabites there at Peor, he stopped it in its tracks and he helped to stop the plague that had killed 24,000. And then he turned around and he went into battle and he defeated the Midianites and their five kings because he was obedient to the word of God. But we know there were bad examples. Bad examples in Israel's history of priests Eli's son, Hophni, and another, Phinehas, were greedy, lustful, immoral, immoral sexual relations with the women that came then there to worship. And they were punished. The Philistines killed them in battle, and they captured the Ark of the Covenant. You look at the beginning of the monarchy. One of the reasons for the beginning of the monarchy and Saul becoming king, we heard the other day, was because Samuel's own sons that he had made judges were corrupt to the core. And because Israel did not trust them, they said, we need to have a king, and we know the end of that story. So you see, it's important that when we listen to the Word of God that, we, that is taught to us by our parents or our spiritual parents, that we listen carefully and obey rightly. When we listen to Jesus, we listen to the Father because He imitates His Father's actions. You know, He says in John, the fifth chapter again, He does what the Father does. He does those things just exactly as the Father does them, and he cannot do anything that he does not see the Father doing. And he goes on to say, just as the Father is able to raise, I will be able to raise from the dead. And that's a promise that we have today. He can raise us and will raise us from the dead because of the power of the Father. Well, our history is replete with those kinds of examples 
of family not only resemblance and character, but of children imitating their parents, not just our history, but look at the classical world of music. Johann Sebastian Bach had how many descendants that had watched their dad and then their granddad generation after generation. Two centuries of great musicians, 75 of them imitating their forebears. In politics in our nation, the Kennedys and the Rockefellers and the Bushes, in acting, the Barrymores and the Red Grays and the Carradines and the Baldwins, in industry and business, the Fords and the Edsels. Yes, there was a son named Edsel, not just a car. The Waltons with Walmart. You see, these dynasties are built not only on one person, but successive generations of children that imitate their parents. Look at the sports world. Archie Manning never won a Super Bowl, but Eli and Peyton watched him and imitated him. And Peyton won two Super Bowls and Eli two more as well. I don't know who's going to win this afternoon. (laughs) Bobby Hall, 1,299 points. Hall of Fame, his son, Brett Hall, 1,581 points. How many games did Brett go watching his dad score goal after goal? Bobby Bonds. He is one of only two people in Major League Baseball history that has over 300 home runs and over 400 stolen bases. Who is the other? His son, Barry Bonds. And he far surpassed his dad. You see, these kids watched their dad and they imitated their dads and they became something of a success themselves. When we listen to the words of Jesus, we're listening to the words of the Father because he imitates and he does what the Father has done. When we listen to Jesus, he speaks with the Father's authority because he follows his orders. You see, all his teachings, all of Jesus' teachings unswervingly and in a dedicated manner followed the Father's predetermined script. He was given a script before he came here, and this is what you will do to accomplish my will. And that script points to eternal life. In John, the 12th chapter, two chapters before today's, it says, The Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is this. His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. You see, when he speaks, he not only speaks with the Father's authority, but he was commanded to speak that, and he fulfilled that command. And finally... When we listen to Jesus, we listen to the Father because he executes his Father's will completely. This doesn't just mean when we talk about following the Father's will, we usually speak about obedience, and that's true. But it's more than just obedience. It's fulfilling the Father's promise, the Father's will and testament. And that's what Jesus did. You know, there's some really crazy wills that have been written throughout history. (laughs) And there's some that are really touching. Fulfilling the will of the one that has written it, Jack Benny, when he died on the 26th of December, 1974. (laughs) His will was this, that his actress wife, Mary Livingston, would receive a rose delivered to her every day for the rest of her life. Isn't that touching? And it was fulfilled. She died on the 30th of June, 1983, a little more than nine years later, 3,108 roses. You see, executing, accomplishing, doing the will of the benefactor. Wellington Burt, different story, a millionaire, 
Lumber Baron, mayor of Saginaw, Michigan, died in 1919. He was a multimillionaire. He was the eighth wealthiest man in America at the time. And he said this, my wealth will not be distributed until 21 years after the death of the last grandchild. And that happened in 1989. Marion Lancel died in 1989, and that golden egg then sat dormant for another 21 years until 2010. Finally, 12 survivors that never had, had met him, had only seen him in a picture, inherited and split up $110 million 92 years after his death. But you see, the will was executed. The executors of the state obeyed. Jesus is the Father's executor. He not only obeyed the Father, he executed his will. He said, this is what I'm all about. This is what, what motivates me. I do not come to do my own will, he told the Pharisees, but the will of him who sent me. And he told the Jews, I do not seek my own will, but I seek to do the will of him who sent me. It was, it was his primary driving force. You know, after he talks to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, then his disciples come up to him. They say, are you hungry? Do you want something to eat? You know, they've been to the town to get food. And he says, no, don't worry about it. He said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food is to do what? To do the will of him who sent me. This is what drove him. And he completed his mission. He fulfilled the Father's will. Later in John 17, when he's praying his high priestly prayer, he says this. He says, I glorified you on earth. I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now it's time for you to glorify me. And the way goes through the cross. What is the Father's will that glorifies the Father? He says that in his prayer, it is eternal life. To give eternal life to those whom the Father had given the Son. And he says this, Everyone who then beholds the Son and believes in Him has eternal life. That's the Father's command. That's what Jesus came to fulfill. What is eternal life? In that high priestly prayer, He goes on to say, This, this is eternal life, that they may know you, God, Father, that you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent to know me. And how do we have that eternal life? He made it very clear in John 6. He who hears my word, he who hears what I'm saying, and remember that's what, what I say is what the Father said. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. So let's wrap it up. Let's summarize things. I believe this. If we want to see the Father, we look where? We look at the Son. If we want to know the Father, we believe the Son. So over the next few months as we listen to Jesus' words, if we want to know the Father, we believe what He says. If we want to live with the Father someday, then we abide with His Son. And if we want eternal life, we believe and abide with Jesus Christ. And if we want to abide with His Son, we keep His commandments. You see, the words that we're going to be speaking and reading over the next few months are not only the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, they're the words of God the Father. They're the very words of God that have not only been spoken and transmitted, they have been spoken by God Himself as He walked this earth. And He says this to us, if we want to abide with Him, we will keep His commandments. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. 
I'm not saying by doing and obeying and accomplishing and ticking off legalistic commands that we're saved. But folks, if we believe Jesus and we abide in Him, and He believes His Father and He abides in His Father and He keeps the Father's commandments, then the corollary is this. If we're God's children, if we are saved and we have eternal life, we do what? We obey what He says. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much that You have sent Your Son to communicate Your will and Your Word and Your commandment to us. And Your commandment is to believe in Him and to believe You who sent Him so that we might know that we have eternal life. Our prayer this morning is, as people have heard Your Word through Jesus proclaimed and what we have sung, what we have prayed, what we have read from Scripture, and what we have preached this morning, that someone will come to know You, Father, as God Almighty, Father of the Savior of this universe, this cosmos, and the Savior of their soul. And I pray that they will surrender their life to Him as Lord and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.